Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you are raised around artists, trust is an extraordinary magic current that runs through everything. If you sell a painting that day, you're taking your friends out to dinner and you're not worrying about when they get you back. You need childcare when you have to wake up at five in the morning to set up your booth you know, the family next door takes care of your kids. So communities that have been starved of resources are a a thousand times more trusting. And as a result, I think they don't approach opportunities from a place of scarcity or skepticism. They approach opportunities from a place of open-hearted excitement or generosity or the type of impulse that's like, how can I be helpful? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my faraway co-host, Rodney Evans. I do feel so far away. Hello, everyone. (laughs) We are also joined today by Mara Zapeta, the co-founder and managing director at Zebras Unite. Mara, welcome to the show. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. On uh, today's episode, we're going to talk about founders of a different stripe and get into what exactly that means. But before we do that, we, of course, will check in. Of course we will. It's our favorite part of the show. And I, I hear that it's a lot of our listeners' favorite part, too. So we will begin this episode like all the others, and we will include our esteemed guest in answering this question. What is one fear you have that you would like to conquer? And I'll go first and then Mara and then Aaron, you can finish us off. So this is my forever fear and most obvious one, which is I am afraid of snakes. I have always been afraid of snakes. I live in the state of America that I believe has the most snakes (laughs) of any state in America. And for a period of time after we bought our lake house, I was so convinced that there were snakes everywhere that I almost didn't want to go there. But through Self-administered exposure therapy. I feel like I'm getting slightly better, but I wish that I could just flip a switch and be completely over it. So snakes. Mata, what about you? Lately, one of my recent fears has been that my funeral will be lame. (laughs) And kind of like what I mean by that is a funeral is a really amazing opportunity if it's designed right to kind of like propel the work that you try to do in your lifetime. You know, I don't want to say it it could be designed like a conference, like that's trite, but it could really be designed more like a wedding where you would want people to get to know one another. And rather than the focus being on like you and your life, if all those people are gathering, it should be a very differently designed experience. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about that and my wedding. And so my fear is like, I'm going to die before I have the chance Mm. to really intentionally plan my 
specific hopes and dreams for what that would look like. So knock on wood, fingers crossed, but I'm planning to set aside some time this weekend to do an intentional funeral design so that I'm not just subjected (laughs) to the status quo, which is like so disappointing. (laughs) Yeah. Just boys to men playing and the whole thing. Uh, And so somber, you know, Yeah, so somber and yeah, that's, that's my take. (laughs) I love that. For me, it's also, I guess, a very visceral one, Rodney, like you, I just don't care for choking. Uh, (laughs) I personally would like to not choke. And I would really prefer if everyone around me would not choke as well. And I'm constantly on, on alert. Like if anyone in the house coughs twice in a row, I'm like, Hey, you okay? Put a hand up. So yeah, I've taken the courses. I'm as knowledgeable as I can be. I have thought about like going to school and learning how to do tracheotomies, but it's a real phobia. So, and I think it stems from a childhood, you know, choking experience. So I'm, I'm working on it, but I, I'm not getting anywhere. Interesting. I also just last night, I took a quiz about anxiety to understand anxiety level. And one of only about 10 questions Mm. that they ask is, do you have a fear of choking? Hmm. Interesting. So apparently it's a trapping of an anxious brain. All right. Fair enough. I can wear that. Okay. So uh, today's topic is zebras. And I guess I'd like to start by asking you, what is a zebra? Good question. Uh, A zebra was something that my co-founders and I kind of imagined up and put words to based on our own experience as founders. Back in 2017, we were seeing a lot of the Silicon Valley status quo, you know, growth at all costs up and to the right. And we really felt like there was a different way of building companies, which is what we were doing. So it's nothing new. This has been identified in in many different ways, but we just put a cute word to it. So a zebra, unlike a unicorn in Silicon Valley, a zebra is real. Uh, It's both black and white. So it's pursuing both purpose and profit. And we noticed some characteristics of zebras. Uh, We're mutualistic. We tend to be very cooperative and we Mm. like working with one another. It's in our nature. Zebras, when they gather in herds, they're called a dazzle. So that was also another (laughs) wonderful, (laughs) another wonderful part of the language. Uh, And we have peerless stamina and we are efficient. And so the goal isn't to burn as much venture capital as possible. We were building profitable, sustainable companies and we were looking for a different way. And so we we called that different way the zebra. And that's how it was born in a manifesto that we wrote uh, titled Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break. I love it. And, and I love the manifesto. So if folks out there are not familiar with it and with Zebras Unite in general, tell us a little bit about what inspired it initially and what reform, what action are you demanding in the world? Mm-hmm. What inspired it was really a sense of desperate loneliness. The four of us, Ania, Astrid, Jennifer, Brindell, and myself, all of us were founders that we felt completely isolated. It was born out of great disillusionment by going to SOCAP, which for those of you that might be listening is a social impact conference Mm -hmm. held in San Francisco every year. And Jen and I met up and we were wandering around this abyss of Fort Mason with thousands of people ostensibly there who were interested in investing in and supporting and learning about 
quote unquote, social impact companies. And we really were not finding what we were looking for. We weren't finding people that we could relate to. We weren't finding founders that were talking about how they were concretely building their businesses with a focus on revenue. We weren't finding people that were like fun (laughs) and like wanted to hang out. And it was, you know, it was just kind of like showing up at a party where you were like, wow, I'm really out of place here. And we figured, okay, maybe there's a few others like us. So we, we penned this manifesto with Ania and Astrid who were also facing these similar challenges. We penned the manifesto without any goal. And I think that's the way that a lot of creative work is brought into the universe. It was very much just a way to put to words our own experience, to name a problem that we saw and continue to see as pernicious coming from Silicon Valley. And the hope was maybe we'll magnetize the people who would come to our party. And that was overwhelmingly the case in ways that we couldn't imagine. We heard from 10 thousands, tens of thousands of founders and investors since then who are part of our online community, who have started chapters around the world, who have said what you've described, what you put words to was a feeling that I held in my heart as well. I didn't have the words. And we essentially put language to an experience that many people were feeling. And so, you know, to answer your question about what is the goal or what is the change that we're demanding... At the time of writing, the only change we wished to see was one of a different culture that would create the conditions for companies like ours to succeed. And as we brought on more people and stakeholders, and since we're a co-op, those people are member owners, what it is that we're demanding looks more like what it is that creates the conditions for all of our companies to thrive. And that's a very emergent process that, especially after this last year, is changing. So when you think about the manifesto kind of coming out and catching hold, how then did you translate that and the goals of the manifesto into a thing that became Zebras Unite? Like, what did you have to do? What did you have to put together to to make that happen? Gosh, that's, you know, it's a thousand micro steps. So (laughs) I won't, you know, the manifesto came out, tens of thousands of people raised their hands. That November, we held a gathering called DazzleCon, And the objective was, let's bring together the community that this resonated with, and we'll all begin to co-create. And what Mm -hmm. became immediately transparent was we couldn't pursue the traditional status quo business models. So it didn't make sense for us to be a nonprofit because there is so much profit opportunity in us working with one another, generating services. This is a profitable, that has the possibility and capability of being a profitable business enterprise. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense to be a Delaware C Corp. And so that sent us down the path of then beginning to have to explore what are alternative corporate mo- models. And that journey brought us to the door of Jason Weiner, who at the time was doing all sorts of innovation around multi-stakeholder cooperatives. And so co-op law, you know, transformed at just the right moment that we needed it to in order to incorporate Zebras Unite as a multi-stakeholder cooperative. It was like a just-in-time innovation that allowed Mm. us to pursue that path. So because that corporate form was one that that existed, really was relatively new, and because of Jason's expertise, who has been a guest on this podcast, and I encourage you to... Yes, exactly. That was really what made creative thinking possible. And so with his thought partnership, we were then able to co-design and and you know to 
to begin to think about who are all of the stakeholders in this movement and who are all of the member owners and how can we design this in a multi-stakeholder cooperative way. So that's sort of how that path of, you know, to your question, that's the short answer. I mean, the the much longer answer that would take hours is like every single step along the way was some miracle of generosity of, <laughs> you know, initial seed funding, the right advisor coming in at the right time, the right person signal boosting us, the right amount of press, the right recognition, you know, so it's obviously like a, a swarm of synchronicity that allowed for us to be here. But that that's sort of the most direct line that I'll paint. <laughs> and and that kind of reminds me, there's a quote on your site from Shel Silverstein. I asked the zebra, are you black with white stripes or white with black stripes? How do you think about that? How are you both black and white at the same time? I think that's been a real mind trip with this movement. And it's been, for me, a huge exercise, a, a huge learning opportunity. So people will come to us and say like, well, are you a nonprofit or are you Mm going to make money or why don't you start a fund? Oh, so you do investment. Oh, oh, your chapters. Okay. So you have international (laughs) chapters. They see sort of this octopus and they, there's a human desire to categorize and silo and say, oh, okay, you're this. And so that brings comfort, great comfort. One of my mentors is Margaret Wheatley, who describes this notion that that um, comes from the Hopi tradition that like right now we're in a quickly flowing, rushing river. And those of us that are holding on to the shore of the known are the ones that will be torn apart. Mm-hmm. And so what Zebras Unite is doing as an experiment is we're riding those waves with some amount of ease and joy with the others that are in that river that are ready to let go of the known shore. And that means not siloing and not preemptively identifying and categorizing what this is supposedly doing. So that's kind of the poetic way of speaking about it. The more practical way of speaking about it is we're a hybrid organization. We have a nonprofit, and that is a sidecar that allows us to advance the mission and the educational work. We are a multi-stakeholder cooperative, and we'll soon be developing ways of getting capital into the system as well through Zebras Unite Capital. And so we're doing all of it. Most people, when they hear that, if they're still on the shore and grasping at it, will say, I'm confused. That's not possible. You have to focus. Mm -hmm. And we have learned the opposite, which is really that that holistic approach of experimentation and community is so beneficial. And, And so it all has to be done all at the same time, in the words of Nora Bateson, you know, these are all holistic and interrelated pieces. And you can't just kind of pull out one and say, that's what you're going to do. So the holism of it has been such a learning experience for me. So that leads really nicely into a question that we wanted to ask you to get a little bit more into the how. So your manifesto really explores what a more ethical startup culture can look like, right? Like one that's more inclusive and more grassroots and alternative and not so extractive and more cooperative. And all of that feels like where we would like to be headed to have a healthier future. Understanding a little bit more now about how Zebras Unite is structured and what y'all are up to, talk to us a little bit about the how. How are you steering more ethical startup culture in the day-to-day? Yeah, I love your question, Rodney. And even 
even the word steering, I'm not sure I can say that we're doing, (laughs) (laughs) which I, I don't mean to be evasive, but this is what I can say to you in terms of the how. The how is that it's done in community. And there are certainly a lot of principles that you all have written about and that have been documented in Reinventing Organizations and others. There are a lot of principles that listeners of the show will be very familiar with around governance, decision-making, power Mm -hmm. sharing, sociocracy, circles, processes, you know, how you share power, how decisions are made, who has autonomy to make them, how you do it in teal organizations. So that's the theory of it. The practice of it on the ground, and I and I guess I just want to state clearly, I believe a lot has been written about the theory of it, and we're immeasurably grateful for the documentation of the theory. The practice of it is that this week, we have a member of the team that is been in Germany for a month caring for her dying mother. We have a member of the team that has been deeply impacted by the events in Palestine. We have a member of the team that is new and she's two weeks in, you know, and we have a member of the team that is dealing with a mother who's experiencing homelessness. The practicalities of how an organization behaves and the culture that emerges from that reality on the ground is a terra incognita of culture, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that I wish to drive home is if I were to say to you to answer to your question, Rodney, like we have a cooperative team decision-making process that involves sociocratic governance and that would be the description of the how, Mm -hmm. but the lived experience of the what, (laughs) when you're in the midst of figuring out how do you create energy, solidarity, compassion, and healing within a container of a team that's driving forward social change is like profoundly inner work that other than Ari Weinzweig from Zingerman's, frankly, like I have not seen really documented in in, in at this degree of, mm-hmm. of pain. It's just an extraordinary amount of pain that people are feeling right now. And, and if businesses are able to be a container and a, and a way to process some of that, like it will go a long way in healing. But, but that work is something that for me still feels very emergent and, and ephemeral. Can you talk a little bit about why the traditional model or the traditional way of building and growing and funding a business is letting us down in those ways? What what seems to be the incentives or the nature of those structures that is stopping this kind of human behavior and relationship building and and expression from coming out? Mm. I mean, I think there's so many reasons. One is I don't know that people have the tools to do the inner work that's required. I think that people think think of entrepreneurship as an external endeavor Mm. where you're building a company. And my experience of it has been, I mean, I turned to depth psychology and Carl Jung and that line of thinking in order to explore how I might show up in these spaces. (laughs) I'm, I'm not turning to entrepreneurship books, you know, and if I were to I turn to people like Nora Bateson and warm data and what she has to say about somathesy, which is this, process of learning together. So rather than looking at quantitative data or rigid systems, 
you begin to create containers that create safe spaces for co-learning and accompaniment and emergence. The Baha'i faith speaks quite a bit about emergence. Mm -hmm. There are principles in Islam that speak very much to this. So in in wisdom traditions and in spiritual traditions, you'll find much more of this. I'm, you know, St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila are regular reads for me. So one, I think, is there's not a, an honest conversation about resources that we can pursue for inner work. I think Charles Eisenstein's work probably speaks the most to that in some ways. Sure. I think. Yeah. And I think another reason is that people are afraid of telling the truth. So (laughs) (laughs) um, one of our values at Zebra's Unite is to be truthful and speaking the truth and seeing the truth and putting words to the truth is not our favorite activity, understandably. Speaking of truth, uh, the truth is that it has been hard, I think, historically for zebra-like businesses to really receive the light of the mainstream. And I'm curious if you think it is possible and or necessary for one or more zebras to really achieve what other traditional companies are achieving in terms of success and scale, or if that's actually antithetical to the message and to the movement and how you kind of weigh those two polarities. Mm. I don't think our aspiration is to be in the spotlight of the mainstream because the spotlight of the mainstream will never have conversations like the one that we're having. (laughs) So I would say the spotlight of the mainstream is not the place that we wish to be. In terms of scale, I believe that there are zebra companies that are and will be unicorns and their path may just be ones that align, maybe one that aligns really well with the venture capital model. So it's mm-hmm. not mutually exclusive. What I will say is that our country's economic prosperity depends on many more entrepreneurs succeeding at the scale that feels right for them. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what I'm more interested in is what is this Aspen Grove of interconnected companies that are helping one another, are learning from one another, are sharing resources. You know, maybe they share a team member because they can't afford a full-time team member. There are ways to embed cooperative mutualistic principles in practically every aspect of business. And once the mindset shifts from one of competition to one of cooperation, there are massive efficiencies that can be achieved from businesses cooperating with one another that that are just almost beyond comprehension when you compare it to the traditional singular competitive model that I'm beginning to experience that are so profound, like the the ways that we are stronger together. And I'm sorry, that sounds so trite, but it's really (laughs) true. When businesses stop thinking about themselves as, as an isolated enterprise and begin to have a mind shift of how do I connect with other companies? How can I be of service to other companies? How can we create networks so that founders might not feel so isolated? How do employees come in as shareholders and owners? How do we include all of our stakeholders? All of these questions lead to such richer opportunities that I don't even think we have the imagination to comprehend. We see it in nature, but I don't think we've yet seen it in the business ecosystem. And so we're kind of at the edge of this walking into this field. And especially when you speak with the next generation who is utterly intolerant of this ego-driven 
take what's mine because they have the climate crisis looming over their mind. This, you know, the, the competitive way is the way of the dodo right now. Mm-hmm. The next generation will be completely intolerant of the what's in it for me mentality. And so I do think eventually we'll become the quote unquote mainstream, but it's going to be through a process of there's no other way. There's no other way for our, our survival depends on that other way of cooperation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's emerging for me in a very half-formed way in this conversation so far is this idea. You know, I I have been in and around plenty of investment organizations and investors so far in my career. And reality is everyone is looking for the TEDx return. Everyone's looking for the unicorn, et cetera, et cetera. And the percentage, the, the odds of that are so incredibly slim right? In terms of when you look at an entire ecosystem. And so what's interesting to me is when I read your manifesto and when I listen to you talk about your approach to this and the sort of high tide raises all boats, think like a network, et cetera, et cetera. All of that feels deeply intuitive. And it also feels like it is sustainable and has better odds. It feels like poker, Mm -hmm. not roulette, frankly. Why do you think there is such a perverse desire to have incredibly high-risk, low-odd orientation around capital investments? Mm. What a thoughtful question. (laughs) I I really appreciate you asking that. I, I think, yeah, my first answer that came to mind is fear. I don't think that, I mean, I'm going to make a very gross generalization here, but the investors that I've spoken to are not trusting people. Hmm. They, you know, your typical Silicon Valley investor and side note, I have raised Silicon Valley investment. So I know what that's like. I I previously had a venture funded startup. They don't trust, like they're looking to poke holes. They're looking to understand why this is going to fail. Their mindset is essentially like, you are a failure unless you somehow convince me otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the whole worldview is one that I've, it's completely foreign to me. I was raised by parents who are artists. My father was a painter. My mother is a cellist. I was raised in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is an artist colony. If you are raised around artists, trust is is an extraordinary magic current that runs through everything. If you sell a painting that day, you're taking your friends out to dinner and you're not worrying about when they get you back. Your car breaks down when you're on your way to an art show, you call someone and ask for help. You need childcare when you have to wake up at five in the morning to set up your booth. You know, the family next door takes care of your kids. So especially artist communities, communities that have been starved of resources are a a thousand times more trusting And as a result, I think they don't approach opportunities from a place of scarcity or skepticism. They approach opportunities from a place of open-hearted excitement or generosity or the the type of impulse that's like, how can I be helpful? And and so I think it's it's like a worldview mentality. It's a mindset mentality. If you're going in it thinking like, what's in it for me? How am I going to return, you know, for the LPs? And I don't say this from a critical place because venture capital is set up in such a way that those investors have a fiduciary responsibility to make certain returns, Mm -hmm. but they are complicit in the machine of skepticism 
and negative, I would say, go so much to say negativity, rather than approaching these opportunities that land at your door with an open-hearted mindset. And one really practical way just to bring it down into the practical, one area that I've always been so confused about with venture capital is, I remember when I was raising for my company and it was like, you were just shaking the tin can trying to get 25,000 here, 100,000 there, you know, it was just painful and the song and dance and the smoke and mirrors. And I could speak for a long time about how I had to navigate that process in order to stay true to myself and be in integrity. But I always wondered, like, why didn't an investor ever set me down and be like, I'm going to give you $500. I just want you to run an experiment and come back to me and let me know what did you learn and what did you do with it? Mm-hmm. So so why does investment so high risk? And if I were ever an investor, like this is what I would just do all day is anyone whose idea was like even had a glimmer of something, I would just write $500 checks all day as the first check in to be like, tell me what you did with this. Oh, you decided to hire a therapist for your team. Great. Like that, that's a signal to me of how you are in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think another part of venture capital that's always been so broken that I've never, I've probably felt too embarrassed to talk about until now is like, why are we making these huge bets? Like, Mm -hmm. why is there not a micro engine to just begin to get to know founders to spend a day in their shoes? Why aren't investors coming out and just like, not observing founders, but being like, let's go do something together. So I have, I have a lot of hypotheses, but I'd also be curious to hear what you think is the preventing mechanism for why that mindset is so difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there are a couple of things that came to mind as, as you were talking and your answer was very thought provoking for me because I haven't spent that much time thinking about this really, but I think there are a couple of things. I think one is that there is just, there is a cultural moment happening right now around very individuated success at the helm of a very small handful of companies. And the fact that there are a few household names who have become effectively omnipresent in not just American, but global culture because they have scaled a business to, you know, insane proportion. I think there is a thing culturally that has coalesced around that, that investors see as very appetitive. And they're like, how do I get into that kind of rocket ship? The other thing, though, that frankly squares more with the kind of work that we do really typically is that I just find human beings in systems generally are much more comfortable with dysfunctional patterns that are familiar than novel patterns that are not. And What that looks like, I think, in terms of investment cycles is the same thing that it looks like in terms of org design, where every client on earth working in a giant bureaucracy wants to tell you for days how fucked everything is. But the moment you question how they budget, how they hire, (laughs) how they structure, how they strategize, they're like, hold on a second. That seems like anarchy or that seems counterintuitive or that seems like an anti-pattern. And it's like, Well, Mm -hmm. you just told me why everything that you're doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. isn't serving you. And now you're telling me why doing something you haven't tried will also not serve you. So what do you want to do here? And and I don't think it's really that different Mm -hmm. in the investment ecosystem. Like, you know, I'm sure you've had lots of conversations, as have I, with investors who are very dissatisfied with the metrics they're held to and the deal flow they see and the expectations. And yet 
There's not Mm -hmm. like a deep questioning of whether there is a more experimental, more adaptive, more teal way of redefining that kind of ecosystem. I totally, yeah. And I think that like the crossing of the chasm you're describing of that high up executive that's skeptical and is seeing anarchy on the other side, (laughs) that ability to transition over is, I think, born out of their experiences in trust. You know, so it's like if they've never had to hold someone's hand and just trust that they're going to take them to the other side, they don't have a lived experience of calling up trust. And so they don't have the muscle memory to execute what it is that you're talking about Mm -hmm. because they've never had to rely on the family next door to feed their children for dinner while you're playing in the, in the orchestra, you know? So I don't know. I'd be, that's really interesting. I think what you're saying really dovetails with what I'm noticing, which is a lot of these ideas that we're talking about, both individual and tribal are about community and they're about smallness and they're about, yes, you take my kids when I need to go do a thing. There is this necessary precondition that we are organized and connected in a way that is limited in scale and that is local in in its nature. And I think there's something structural happening at the same time of, of our recognition of the value of that, which is the digitization of everything and the internet has effectively made it so that almost every industry is going to be digitized or has been digitized. And when that happens, the ability to have a winner-take-all, you know, capture competition is suddenly possible. So now it's like, well, I used to buy my books at the bookstore, but now really there's going to be one bookstore unless we do something drastic to kind of pull back to that. And so I feel like from the investment standpoint, it is I'm investing in future monopolies and failures or small wins just don't matter because the game mm-hmm. from this perspective, the game has shifted to a global stage where there's room for a few winners and that's kind of it. And I think the thing that I've always gotten stuck on and that maybe this is provocative to, to this crowd, but you know where my values lie. The thing I've always gotten hung up on is every time I see a cooperative play trying to compete with that monopolistic play, the product is worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, oh yeah, show me the cooperative Uber and I'll Mm -hmm. show you an app that sucks compared to the Uber app. And I don't know why that is. Is it capital? Is it talent flow? Is it privilege? Is it it taste? I, I don't know what it is, but I am craving in my heart the moment where I open up my computer one day and someone's like, this cooperative that was locally funded and focuses on distributed decentralized leadership has created something that is stunningly high quality mm. and, and that just dunks on the, on the traditional leader in the space. And maybe that is my own kind of schism between the, the need to win and the need to play on a big stage and that movement versus my values. But it just feels like this staticky area for me that I can't quite unpack. Uh-huh. I love, I would love to say that I totally disagree with you because, and the reason why is I don't know that the product is the product. So I think that the scenario you just outlined is I'm looking for an app that roughly rivals Uber in its UI and, you know, its user experience. And I'm just looking for it to be cooperatively owned and sort of, we want a polished, seamless user experience. And what we're going to do is it's, we're trying to compare apples to apples here. So we're going to compare this homegrown co-op with Uber. Sure. 
And I think what I've learned is that it's, we're actually just comparing, I don't even want to say apples to oranges. It's like (laughs) apples to the like vast expanse of ocean. (laughs) Right. Um, And one of the co-ops that comes to mind is a co-op that's in the cohort, start doc co-op cohort with me in Zebras Unite is called Drivers Cooperative. And so they're Mm. essentially doing what you're talking about, which is there's this extractive model. Uber totally screws over drivers. Drivers Co-op is this app that puts the power in the driver's hands. It's an, a cooperative ownership model. It's piloting in New York. You can download the app at drivers.coop. That's a plug for cool. it's 100% worker owned. The wages are fair. The power sits with them. I'm in the cohort with, you know, one of the founders of, of drive.coop was formerly worked at Uber. Mm-hmm. So here's someone who's coming from Uber. And then you have the worker owners, many of whom are first generation immigrants who have never been exposed to startups or entrepreneurship, let alone yep. owning a seat. So what's unfolding there is a profound process of accompaniment, education, learning, trust building, community building. And I promise you that Alyssa and Ken are the ones that are going to be in the river riding the waves and Uber is going to be like clutching on for dear life to the shore. Not because their app will have been a thousand times better than Uber's or whatever polish it is that we are holding, you know, these measures up to, but because they've learned to be in community and the being in community and, and trusting of one another and knowing one another is like the I thou work of what it means to be human. (laughs) And they will be so much better equipped in this world. You know what I mean? And so I just think the byproduct of that experience, again, why you're hearing me grasp for words for it is because it's not about the app. It's about what's going on in working in relationship and the way that people come to become self-aware, to evolve, to become more compassionate and loving. And like that is a process that's unfolding. And it may be that they have a profitable, you know, driver's app in the process of it. But I, I really appreciate your point. And it's it's something that we've contended with a lot as we get that question. And it's like, those are, we're not even, that's not even the game board that we're on anymore, you know? No, totally. And I think the the necessary community level shifts in individuals and their choices and their preferences is the fulcrum of that lever. Either it works because mm. people make that choice and they choose to buy a different product. And I, I mean that word as broadly as you meant it, or it doesn't. And if you hear any cynicism from me, it just comes from the fact that like all the small businesses in every small town in America had the ideology we're describing to a certain degree. And it didn't matter because Walmart had more capital and had lower prices. And so at the end of the day, what I'm concerned about is the rate of individual change as people who buy and make choices versus the rate of monopolistic capture (laughs) of, of the other players. And I and what I'm looking for, or what I'm craving, I guess, is is to have the movement get as much support as possible during that race. Because mm-hmm. I, I worry, frankly, as I look ahead at our next two decades, I worry about the rate of both movements. It's such a good question. I think one aspect, another variable in what you're talking about is maybe to your point about consumer choice. Consumers also make choices based on how much fun they're having with the people that they're with. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, this is something that, you know, Tony Shea knew from Zappos. But if if those other counter movements and these alternatives can 
at their foundation be fun and life-giving. Totally. Then that might be the play. And that's how we begin to make our decision is knowing that, oh, that, you know, another user of this product would take care of my children. So I, I think it's the fact that there's different ways that we begin to make choices is also one that I think is underneath your question that is very thought provoking. Yeah, I love that. And Zappos got bought by Amazon. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So, Here we are. <laughs> we can do better. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. So jumping off from there with a bit of hopefulness and and knowing that I really identify with this question, there's this typical investment expectation of either selling your company to a bigger company or going the IPO route and kind of being in the public markets. And Zebras Unite has been talking about a third option, which is exit to community. And so can you talk about what that looks like and what it means and how we can all have some? Yeah. Well, it was such an unlikely story. So a few years ago, we happened to be in New York as WeWork was imploding. And you might recall that one of the companies that WeWork bought at its heyday was Meetup, this very beloved, very zebra type company that at the time it was acquired, I believe was profitable. Scott Hefferman being one of, you know, the, the great lights of early tech. And after the acquisition and then after the meetup's implosion, they were trying to offload assets. And so they essentially were put meetup for sale. And the zebras started to look at meetup and we ran through this thought experiment of like, what would it look like if meetup exited to its community? And what we mean by that is rather than it being bought by private equity, what would it look like if instead the incredible network of tens of thousands of organizers and millions of meetup users plus their really incredible team and employees became the owners of Meetup. How would you go about structuring that? So we wrote this piece called Meetup to the People, where Mm. we documented this, like one of the most harebrained things that I think we've ever done, (laughs) but which was essentially like, let's try to acquire Meetup. I mean, like none of, we had like a thousand dollars between us and our bank accounts probably at the time, but we sort of went through this, this thought experiment. And so we actually got oddly I don't want to say oddly far, but we got into the data room. We had conversations with the executive team. We actually found investors that were really intrigued. And the main concern that they had was there was no one that they could think of to put in an executive capacity to shepherd that transition into community ownership. So even if they acquired it and we had the cash, what would the mechanics be to actually create this multi-stakeholder exit for Meetup into this new form? And at the time, this coincided with a lot of work that Nathan Schneider at the University of Colorado Boulder had been doing around this alternative exit. So rather than traditional exits of getting acquired or going public, what would it look like if these companies for whom neither of those were an option really wanted to pursue an exit to community, what are the mechanics of how they would even go about thinking about that? What were the legal ramifications, the culture ramifications? How would you handle it with your team? How would you operationally do it? How would you access aligned capital? And so from kind of that manifesto and Nathan's work, we launched a cohort of companies about 20 companies that sought to explore this idea with their enterprises. And all of them were at different stages of maturity, but it was so, it was just so revealing. And over the course of time, we've since heard these success stories, you know, these incremental success stories of companies being able, for example, the first step of communicating why ownership would be 
beneficial to their employees. Or another founder that has since given up their leadership position to the indigenous leaders that their organization was serving. So we're it's kind of this long game incremental way of following these companies and their journeys to offer them as much support as we can in this in in thinking about this transition. And what's funny about that pattern is that I'm seeing it on both ends actually of the of the investment exit spectrum. So Gumroad recently raised a big round from their own user base and their own community. Other startups have been doing that as well as a way to kind of skirt the traditional VC or complement the traditional VC investment. So it is funny that you may we may actually start seeing that community going in and out. Yeah, I think the you know where the rubber hits the road as you know is in shared governance and decision yep. making. So I think yeah, the the signals that we're seeing of raising capital from the community and crowdfunding are so strong and the next signal is then if and how these leaders begin to create a more shared Um, governance and power sharing structure in their organizations, which is really where this work sits at the end of the day. If only there were a tool for collective (laughs) governance online and agreement making between teams. Imagine. No pitches. All right. for murmur. (laughs) So, So last summer, Zebras Unite published an article with a quote that read, the most urgent human rights project of our time is reimagining business. And your work also reminds us a bit of the Audre Lorde quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. What tools do Zebra (laughs) founders need to reimagine business in the way you're calling for without recreating what has come before? Mm. I'm so happy you asked this question because as it happens, a couple of weeks ago, I became so interested in that Audre Lorde quote that you just referenced that I went to go find the original source because Mm. it was coming up so much. And what many folks don't know is right in front of that sentence, she says, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. Instead, it's learning how to take our differences and make them our strengths. And then she says, for the master's Mm -hmm. tools, we'll never dismantle the master's house. And I think the answer to your question is in the first part of that statement that is oftentimes not quoted, which is it's learning how to take our differences and make them our strengths. So this is a theme throughout this entire conversation. Do you want to be in the spotlight? What does a unicorn zebra look like? What would it look like to be at scale? When are we going to have market competitors, right? We're not yet at the place of being able to say, wow, what makes them different? Oh, my gosh, their culture is one of celebration and healing. They have this shared power. They completely revamped their processes to be collective. They operate on a seasonal timeline to be able to give people rest during the winter. They don't expect growth in every quarter. Like All of those are examples of the differences that Lord might be talking about. All of the work that you do clearly is those differences. And so, I I mean, that's what I I would say to that is like, we're not even like the master is hanging himself in the house right now. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like that ship is going down. The master is destroying himself in this moment of, of where we are in capitalism. And so I don't even know that people in my community anymore are thinking about how to dismantle his house they're beginning to put language to and work in community around how we take our differences and make them strengths. And and I think that's really the moment that we're at is it's almost like that 
that question is almost becoming irrelevant because the emergent kind of Cambrian explosion of experiments that we're seeing across the board born out of this moment are so much more interesting and different and attractive. Well, you could not have chosen a better mascot because when I think about differences and strengths and what stands out, the zebra is is high on that list. And that seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close. I do feel like there might be a part two episode in the making here. But in the meantime, Mara, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work with Zebras United? Please go to zebrasunite.coop and there you can join our online community, which is over 9,000 strong from around the world. You can also learn about how to join a chapter and most importantly, come join us and learn about what we're creating by becoming a member owner. We have open enrollment for membership once a quarter and open enrollment begins in June. So just the month of June for this quarter, uh, you'll see very clearly how to join the co-op and how to get on the waiting list. Come join us. If this resonates with you, we would love for you to own and co create this movement together. Amara, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been an absolute pleasure. And for our listeners, if you love what you're hearing, Mm -hmm. a review would mean so much to us or follow our show, subscribe to our show, support our guests. We really, (laughs) really appreciate it. Amara, thanks again so much for coming. Thank you. Such a pleasure. A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we get the privilege of helping organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>